It's a blessing to be here this evening, and I'm very thankful to be a part of this gathering. If you are a visitor tonight, I want to join with the local brothers and sisters in especially welcoming you and thanking you for taking the time to make our evening together with God a part of your evening. I hope that our study of the Word will be as edifying as our singing and and praying has been thus far. It is always my sincere hope and prayer and endeavor to present the Word of God in a way that is nothing but the Word of God and easy for us to understand. And in the course of our study this evening, I want to talk to you a little while about restoring New Testament Christianity. It's not hard to figure out that what we commonly encounter as Christianity in the modern world and what we read about in the New Testament are two really different things. I'm just going to take for granted that you can observe that. Does that matter? Is it important that we do something about it? Should we feel compelled to try to change what we're doing in any way to be more like what we read about in the scriptures? Well, I want to tell you this evening that I believe that we should. But some aren't concerned about that. Some say there's really no need to do that. Others would say, even if you wanted to, you can't restore what we read about in the New Testament. Some claim that there's no need to restore New Testament Christianity. And attached to this theme, we hear notions that suggest that the Bible is not a rule book. The Bible is not a pattern. The idea of rules or rule book or law or words like blueprint or pattern in some people's theology have sort of become pious cuss words. Like we're not supposed to be concerned about there being any kind of a blueprint. The Bible isn't a blueprint, we're told. It's not a pattern we're supposed to follow. And to suggest that we should treat the Bible as a rule book or as a pattern or a blueprint for the church to the minds of some people is to mistreat Scripture. And so with those thoughts, they would insist there's no need to try to restore Christianity, as we read about it in the New Testament, that was the message of Christ for their day. And for our day, it looks and seems entirely different, and that doesn't matter. Others would suggest that you couldn't restore New Testament Christianity if you tried. That people understand the Bible differently, everybody interprets the Bible their own way, so that there's no way we can get to a point that we know with certainty that this is the right thing to do on this particular issue, or that is a wrong thing to do on this particular issue. That somehow we're just so flawed in our uh, approach to Scripture that no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we can't get it right so... It might seem noble to try to restore New Testament Christianity, but we can't. So you just got to kind of follow your heart or go where your heart leads you or do what you you think is best. Are these notions correct? Is it true that God is an incapable and incompetent communicator that cannot put his word in a book 
in such a way that his children can read it and figure out what to do. Is God that bad of a communicator? I know somebody might be thinking, well, I never heard anybody say God was a bad communicator, but that's in essence what we're going to say. If we're going to say, well, we all understand the Bible our own way, and so we can't really figure out for sure what the right thing to do is. Well, if that's true, that means that God is incompetent at putting his will into words that his children can understand. I know that we as people can be kind of thick-headed and thick, thick up here and slow about getting it. I know that part. But I'm pretty slow to want to adopt a point of view that would suggest that my God cannot communicate his will with me or anybody else so that I could successfully understand what he wants me to do in my life of service to him. Furthermore, it seems objectionable to me to suggest that we don't need to worry about doing what the Bible says because if it's not a blueprint, if it's if it's not a pattern, then there's nothing there for that I'm supposed to follow. And if there's no command, if it's not a rule book, if it's not a book that contains rules, then there's nothing there that I'm supposed to obey. So number one, God is incapable of telling me what he wants me to do. And number two, if he was capable of telling me, I don't have to worry about doing it. That just doesn't add up to me. But you know whether or not it adds up to me doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. Well, I want to know what the Bible says about it. Because I believe the Bible is the word of God and I suspect that you do too. And so let's join our minds together in a quest of God's word and learn what God's word says about these matters. Number one, I just want to say that as per the teachings of scripture, New Testament Christianity should be restored. I want to establish that fact, first of all. To suggest the Bible isn't a rule book seems ludicrous. And I want, to, I want to try to help you understand why I believe that to be the case. Is the Bible a book? Well, the word Bible means book of books or something like that, doesn't it? I mean, obviously it's a book. But we've got that much. We can agree on that. The Bible's a book. Okay, does it have any rules we're supposed to follow? One rule. Is there just one rule we're supposed to follow? Is there a rule against having rules? <laughs> I mean, do we even have that much? That's the point in the lesson where my wife tells me later in the car, you really look like a smart aleck when you said that. I don't mean to look or sound smart aleck, okay? But I think that's a fair question. Is there a rule that says we can't have any rules? If we agree there's just one rule in the Bible and it's a book, doesn't that make it a rule book? Now, I'm pretty sure we all understand there's more than just one rule that we're to follow. That God has more than one command we're supposed to obey. Some people have tried to count. I'm not going to worry about counting them tonight. I have a hard time counting the ten. So I'm not going to worry about counting the commands in the scriptures. Let's just say we all agree that there are several commands in the Lord's will that he wants us to follow. Well, does the body of those commands together constitute a pattern that we're to follow? I think a pattern is a set of instructions. My father was a carpenter before he was a machinist. And when he worked as a carpenter, he would look at a blueprint... 
that was a guide for how the house was to be built or remodeled or whatever. And he would put the boards together and fasten the nails to the board and do all the things that are associated with carpentry in order to build or fashion the house according to that set of instructions that he had. When he became a machinist, he took the same concept of following a, a cogent set of instructions and he applied that to cutting metal on an engine lathe. Now that's back before computers did that for them and they had to sit down and get their inside calipers and their outside calipers and their micrometers and some of those things that some of you guys probably know a little bit about and measure all that stuff and get their tools and cut it just right. And when he got through, there would be a part for a flow meter or a part for an oil well or something like that that had been fashioned or crafted according to a set of instructions that put together constituted a pattern. Well, can we look at the Bible that way as a set of instructions that constitute a pattern that we're supposed to follow? (laughs) The Bible teaches we're to be obedient to God. It seems pretty unfortunate to me that we need to stop and talk about this, but apparently we need to stop and talk about this, that we're supposed to do what God said. For example, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, speaking of Jesus, the Bible says that being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm interested in eternal salvation, and I bet you're interested in that too. So what do we need in order to receive this gift from God of eternal salvation? Well, here he connects the idea of our receiving eternal salvation to whether or not we obey him. Christ authored salvation for those that are obedient. Well, if the Bible has these commands we're supposed to obey, then isn't that sort of like this set of instructions that dad was following to build a house? Or this set of instructions that dad was following at his engine lathe to make a part? You're following a pattern. You're following a blueprint. The pattern is a list of instructions. And that list of instructions are things that you're supposed to do. Commands you're supposed to obey. If there's just two commands in the Bible that I'm supposed to obey, then this passage teaches me, and I believe there's more than that, but if that's all there is, then this passage teaches me That if I want eternal salvation, I need to be interested in trying to follow those two commands. Well, that's following a set of instructions. Isn't that following a pattern? Well, there's even more statements in Scripture that talk about our obedience to the will of God as it relates to whether or not we're saved from our sin. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, he said, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, Under the unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So these people here that Peter was writing to had achieved something that any person should want to achieve. They had attained the purification of their soul. They were free from guilt. And everybody wants acquittal. When something goes wrong, the first thing I want to know is, am I not responsible or am I responsible? The first thing I want to hear is it wasn't your fault, Dave. That's just how I am. I bet you're the same way. We can have that kind of acquittal before God with the purification of our souls, with the wiping away of our sin debt. And this passage says these people attained that by obeying the truth. 
It sounds like they followed a set of instructions to an extent that based on that or in some way connected to that, God granted them pardon. Well, if that means following commands that God has given us, then to some degree, there's some way, there's some extent to which we're to follow the pattern, the blueprint of these instructions that's in the Word. And if I'm going to say, well, the Bible's not a blueprint or the Bible's not a pattern, then that means I don't have to do what the Lord said and these people did. Do we purify our souls by disobeying the truth? That's not what the Scriptures say. So we get the idea we're supposed to do what the Lord says. What drives me to do this? Look, this idea of rule following and rule keeping, that bothers some people. For some reason, that's supposed to be uh, contrary to the concept of, of God's love for us and us returning that love to Him. And I want to tell you, the idea of following God's will is not contrary to the concept of God's love. It's in perfect harmony with the idea of God's love. We love Him because He first loved us. That's correct. The Scriptures tell us that. So what does that love that we have for Him mean in our lives? How does that translate in our lives? Well, it translates into obedience according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. He said, by this we know that we, uh, we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. Our love for God is expressed in us doing what He's asked us to do. So it's about more than just arbitrarily keeping some rule. It's not that empty and void. It's about a relationship with God. A relationship that's centered around His love for us that we repay in our love to Him. Or we respond to it with our love to Him. And that love we have for Him drives us. It compels us. It becomes our internal engine that says, I want to do what He wants me to do. So it's not this ugly idea of rule keeping that some people want to try to boil Christianity down to. It's about living in a relationship with God wherein my love for Him drives me and want to do His will. I hope you have that kind of love for God tonight. And it's more than just love that motivates and moves us to this obedience that's part of our relationship with God. It is central to our faith. In Romans 16 and 26, he said, Now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all the nations for the obedience of faith. And here Paul wrote to the Roman Christians about the obedience of faith. The interesting thing about the, the grammar and the, the word meaning behind this phrase, obedience of faith. You might want to look this up if you've got a copy of Robertson's Word Pictures in the New Testament. He talks about this phrase and he basically explains that that means that, that faith compels you to be obedient. Well, to the student of Scripture, that's not a strange concept. By faith, Abraham obeyed. <laughs> By faith, Noah moved with fear. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 11. We read about 
someone showing their faith by their works in James chapter 2. We're acquainted with the idea of our faith expressing itself in our obedience. Now I'm going to make an untrue statement to you, okay? In five seconds, this building's going to spontaneously combust into flames and kill everybody that's inside. That's a false statement. Unless there's a big meteorite coming that I don't know about. <laughs> That's a false statement. I don't believe it's true and you don't believe it's true. If I believed that it's true, I'd be running and kicking that door open. And somebody else would run and kick that door open. And somebody else would be headed for those doors. If we really believed that this building was about to burst into flames and kill everybody that's inside, we'd all make a mad dash for the exits. Because you see, what we do reflects what we really, really believe. But I don't really, really believe that, so I'm not going to really, really head for the door. And when we think about that as it relates to our relationship with God, when we really believe God's warning about His judgment against sin, when we really believe the promise of salvation that can only be had in Jesus Christ, we will act accordingly. We will take steps in our lives that reflect it. We really believe God's promise of salvation through Christ and we will seek out His terms and the conditions that He set forth in His Word to attain that level where the soul has been purified in obeying the truth. So you see, it's not just this empty rule-keeping. It's the idea of acting upon what we believe. I think we've shown pretty clearly from the scriptures that we're supposed to do the will of God for all the right reasons, not just going through the motions. And being thus obedient to God constitutes following a pattern. Philippians 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul said, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk with the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. He described exactly what we've been talking about. You follow this measure, the rules, the word of God, and that constitutes a pattern by which we walk. The example in Paul's life and the lives of others who live that same kind of life, all those things together form this pattern that we walk by. Paul talked to Timothy about this in 1 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy 1 and 13. He said, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now, let's get this fact. Paul looks at Timothy and he talks about all the things that he had taught his son in the faith through the years. And all that body of teaching together constituted a pattern that Timothy was to follow. A lot of books have been written criticizing this so-called patternistic theology. But apparently that's the exact theology that Paul taught Timothy. Everything I've taught you, it's a pattern and I want you to walk in that. And notice what Paul told Timothy about that following that pattern. It was an act of faith and an act of love. Isn't that what we just read about obedience a moment ago? Apparently we should... Seek to restore New Testament Christianity. Can we restore New Testament Christianity? Can New Testament Christianity can be restored? I want to tell you that that can happen. 
And it's very simple how New Testament Christianity can be restored. The way to restore New Testament Christianity is to take the seed of New Testament Christianity and sow it, plant it in fertile soil. Here we go. The parable of the sower in Luke 8 beginning at verse 5. Jesus said, a sower went forth to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, the fowls of the air devoured it, and some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it, and another fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. Okay, what does all this mean? Well, we keep reading in verse 11. Now, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection." But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. There's a bald spot in my backyard because the dirt there is shallow and what shallow soil is there is very, very bad soil. <clears throat> I have planted Bermuda grass on that spot until it's ridiculous. I can get Bermuda grass to grow up through pavement that I don't want it to grow through. But it won't grow on that bald spot because the soil's bad. Had some spots in the front yard that in the drought from last year it had become barren. And so I took a, a, a bag of seed, the Bermuda grass seed, and I sowed some of it in that good soil in the front lawn and some of it on that stubborn bald spot in the back lawn. And I want to tell you what we planted on the good lawn in the good soil on the front there, it sprang up and spread and did just what Bermuda grass is supposed to do. And that same seed in the backyard died. The difference wasn't a problem with the seed. The difference was the quality of the soil. And that's an important point that Christ makes in this parable. When you take the good seed of the word of God, don't dare say it's corrupt. When we take the good seed of the word of God and it's sown in the good soil of honest hearts, it will produce the fruit of a faithful New Testament Christian that bears fruit that's pleasing to God. New Testament Christianity can be restored by sowing the good seed, the word of God in the hearts. Now we're going to sow this seed and it's going to fall on some old barren ball spots with nasty shallow soil that's just not going to work. But when that good seed finds good soil, it'll produce good fruit. New Testament Christianity can be restored. Let's talk about how. Let's look at Corinth as a test case. The church at Corinth, we read about work commencing at Corinth there in Acts chapter 18, which we'll read a portion of in a little while. We also gather from the letter, the first Corinthian letter, that that congregation that had been established there had fallen on spiritual peril. They had a lot of problems. You can just go through first Corinthians chapter by chapter and enumerate the problems and they're earth shaking, soul shattering 
problems. It was ugly. The church had, in essence, by virtue of their misconduct, had become corrupt, defiled. I mean, Paul was threatening to come with a rod. Not that he's going to come and physically beat them, obviously, but the notion was that they were completely out of line and worthy of the most extreme corrective measures there. They needed the discipline of the teaching of God's word. The church at Corinth needed to be spiritually restored back to what it was supposed to be. They started out being what they were supposed to be. They departed from being what they were supposed to be. And they needed to be brought back to what they were supposed to be. That sounds an awful lot like a miniature restoration movement. And I want to submit to you that that's essentially what happened at Corinth. That by virtue of the letters that he wrote and the visits that were made, not only by Paul, but by others working with him, they were able to take the erring congregation at Corinth and spiritually restore them to proper New Testament Christianity. So let's go and look at that as a test case. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 2, he said, Be you followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Keep the ordinances. You're going to have to be obedient. If you want New Testament Christianity to be restored, we've got to be obedient. We covered that ground, I hope, thoroughly enough. And so what's... How's he going to put the medicine where the pain is? What he's going to do is he's going to give them what he had already delivered to them. He's going to take them back to the pure seed of the word of God and instruct them. Paul expected the church at Corinth to be restored. He expected his work to be a success based on the idea that he would deliver the truth to them and they would keep those ordinances. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 17... He talked about sending Timothy. He said, for this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul expected there to be a sense of unity in belief and practice between the church at Corinth and other congregations. And he expected that to be achieved successfully by bringing them into remembrance what they had originally been taught. And when they went back and kept those ordinances, they'd be doing what other faithful congregations were doing. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 34, in talking about some problems with their communion service, he closed that by saying, the rest will I set in order when I come. Paul expected to successfully restore them to a right standing with God and to a right practice before the judge of all men. He believed that New Testament Christianity could be restored at Corinth. I have no reason to think that Paul was wrong. How can we restore then New Testament Christianity? It should be restored. It can be restored. How do we do it? When we talk about this obedience and doing things right and getting things right, you know, we run this risk of sounding in a way that none of us want to sound. And that's this whole haughty, self-righteous, we're right, you're wrong kind of attitude. Nobody here wants that. Was Paul self-righteous in his effort to correct Corinth? 
Was he haughty and hateful? Well, of course not. He was working within the confines of the will of God. He was a faithful servant of God in that effort. So this work can be done by insisting on being obedient to God. And just because we insist on doing things the Lord's way, that doesn't mean that we're being sanctimonious or self-righteous or trying to condemn half the world to hell. That just means we love the Lord, we have faith in Him, and we want to do what's right. I believe Paul was able to conduct this kind of work in the right spirit. And I believe that we can too. And the key is in how we do that. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 19, he said, The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Culturally at Corinth, they had the same problem that a lot of people have in religion today. They loved human reasoning and loved coming to conclusions that were reached by human reasoning. As a culture, that's what they wanted to follow. And you know, a lot of people today are a lot more interested in following their feelings and their heart and what they like and what they yearn for rather than following the Word of God. Paul reminded the people of Corinth there in the church. He's trying to restore that thing. He says, you guys have got to remember the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Just because it sounds good to you doesn't mean that God likes it. That's kind of hard for us to remember. But when you're talking about restoring New Testament Christianity, we've got to remember that. Just because I like it doesn't mean God wants it. I've got to set aside what conclusion that human reasoning might come to. And seek a conclusion that's based on the word of God. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul gives a, a, a tall order in his effort of restoration at Corinth. He said, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, <coughs> but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He's telling those people to speak the same thing and be of the same mind and the same judgment. Can't happen. Can't be done. As long as we're following wisdom of this world. As long as my agenda is to promote what I want to do or what I feel or what I like, we're never going to be of the same mind and the same judgment. As long as somebody else's agenda is to promote what they want to do and what they like, we'll never be of the same mind and the same judgment. The only way that we can ever be of the same mind and the same judgment is to agree to follow the same standard. And since that standard's not supposed to be what I like, how about we look back to the parable of the sower and say, wait, let's go back to the seed. Let's go back to the Word of God. And let's agree to follow that standard. And disregard my personal preferences, likes and or dislikes. And so that's what they had to do at Corinth. You know, as Paul pled this case with the Corinthian congregation, he brought up the issue of inspiration as being the basis for what he taught. In 1 Corinthians 2 and 13, he said, Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You see, he set aside what human wisdom wants to do. 
And he said, instead, we're going to appeal to the inspiration of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to teach what he taught. So he said, I'm pleading with you, let's go back to the Word of God. And he as an apostle was inspired with that Word. And thankfully, we have the record of that inspired message in letters like the one he wrote in 1 Corinthians. Somebody says, well, you know, the apostles could do it because they had that direct inspiration. But we don't have that today, so we can't do that. We've got the book. Well, but that's not the same. I believe that the Bible teaches that it is the same. In that same letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul said, I'm going to speak to you the things the Spirit has guided us to speak. And so he sits down and he writes this letter and the product of what he had written. What was that to the Corinthian congregation? It was the commands of the Lord. It was the seed. It was the word of God. It was to be the standard that would unite them and make them of the same mind and the same judgment. They're going to have to go back to the basics of doing what God says. So how do we restore New Testament Christianity? We get back to the Word. In matters of salvation, we get back to what the Word says. In Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus brings a very important truth to light in these words. He sadly depicts people on the day of judgment full well expecting to be saved, learning that they're lost. And he points out that they would plead, but we did many wonderful works. I never knew you. Doing wonderful works is not going to save you. We can't do enough good works to scrub away one sin. We've got to do the will of the Father, which is in heaven. And when we obey that truth, then... The blood of Christ, his son, can purify our souls, just like we read earlier in 1 Peter. But just doing good things is not going to cut it. So in matters of salvation, we've got to do what? We've got to go back to the will of the Father. We've got to teach what the Word of God says. And you know that's exactly what Paul did with the church at Corinth. (laughs) In his first letter to the Corinthians, he reminded them of what saved them. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 15, he said, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers? For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul said to these Corinthian Christians, I birthed you into the family of God by the gospel. They were saved. They initially become children of God because of the gospel, by virtue of the gospel. What is that gospel message of which Paul spoke? That initiated them into the family of God, that granted them that blessing of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about that gospel. In verse 1, he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you've received, and wherein you stand, by which also you're saved. If you keep in memory that which I preached unto you, unless you also believed in vain. For I delivered uh, unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the 
scriptures and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He said in 1 Corinthians 4 and 15, I have begotten you, I have sired you, I have buried you into the family of God by the gospel. Here he says it's by this gospel that you're saved. This is how their souls were purified. This was the truth that they obeyed. What was that truth? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. How do we obey that death and burial and resurrection of Christ? When we revisit Paul's letter to the Romans, we get the sense that baptism is at least a part of that uh, idea. In verse 3, he said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we all should walk in newness of life. So to the Corinthians, Paul said, I have begotten you through the gospel. It's by this gospel that you're saved. This gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. To the Romans, he wrote, you contacted that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by being baptized, buried with him in baptism, baptized into his death, in that same thing raised to walk in newness of life. So we're getting a clearer picture that's developing that Paul calls to mind when he wrote the church at Corinth about this saving gospel. Now let's see if we can lay this alongside what Jesus said about the gospel and find any harmony. I believe we can do exactly that. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, Jesus commanded his disciples to carry this gospel message to all the world. He said unto them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What message did Jesus want his disciples to preach? What did he want Paul to preach there at Corinth when he went there in Acts 18? The same thing Paul said he preached to them. The gospel by which they were saved, by which he birthed them into the family of God. He said, go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, how is it that Paul can say the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and Jesus said, preach the gospel, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved? Well, what are they going to believe? They're going to believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again three days later. Then what are they going to do? They're going to be baptized into his death, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. There's perfect harmony between the gospel that Jesus told his disciples to preach and the gospel that Paul said saved the Corinthians, made them a part of the family of God. Now, let's go to where Paul carried this gospel message to Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. We won't read all those verses, but we will read from those verses. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. All right, so he's at Corinth working. What did he teach? It says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. So he's preaching Christ. No doubt the death, burial, resurrection is part of that message. And then what happened next? As a result of preaching Christ, Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Does this sound like anything what Jesus told his disciples to preach? He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. 
And that's the gospel. And Paul said, it's by this gospel that you're saved. It all fits just like a hand in a glove. It fits. When Paul talked about restoring right, restoring New Testament Christianity to church at Corinth, when it comes to the message of salvation, he went back to the word of God. He went back to what Jesus originally taught his disciples in Mark 16 to go and teach others. And that gospel message is what he called their minds to. And that's what we've got to do today. If we're going to restore New Testament Christianity, we've got to go back to that core message. How do we restore New Testament Christianity? We need to restore proper worship. I know that some people believe there is no such thing as improper worship. I know that. I know to some people it's a terrible thing to suggest that God would reject sincere worship. But I'll tell you, he's rejected sincere worship before and he'll do it again. Jesus warned about this kind of problem in Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9. Calling to mind words from Isaiah the prophet and applying it to his generation, Jesus said, This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What was wrong with them, Jesus? But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Instead of conducting their worship according to the word of God, they were following the commands of men. And that made their worship vain, useless, (coughs) empty, futile, (coughs) a waste of time. So if we're going to have proper worship today, we've got to leave the wisdom of men and return to the word of God. And you know, that's exactly what Paul's appeal was to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talked to them about a problem they were having in their communion service. He said, in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What have you not houses to eat and drink in, or despise you the church of God, and shame them which have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now I want to pause before we go to the next screen, and I want to ask you to notice something. The way they were conducting themselves in their worship was wrong. Paul listed things they were doing and he said, shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. They were wrong and they needed to fix it. They needed to be restored. So how's he going to go about doing that? I received of the Lord that which I also delivered. He's going to restore that by going back to the word of God, what was originally received from the Lord and delivering that to them. Isn't that simple? Just go back and get that basic seed. And on he goes, the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. (coughs) To correct the problems that they had in their worship. Thank you, Christopher. At the church at Corinth, Paul appealed to the original gospel record of how Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. In essence, he went back and cited what we now find recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And cited a command of Jesus, this do. And he brought them back to the original example of the Lord. He taught pattern theology. He taught getting back to the pattern of God's Word. 
But we want to do it different. Yeah. Then you won't restore New Testament Christianity. If we want to restore New Testament Christianity, we've got to get back to what the Word of God says. We find more instances in the Corinthian letter where Paul talked to them about their worship. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, he said, What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit. And I will sing with the understanding also. As he talked to them about conducting their assemblies, he talked about their songs and their prayers. And what did he say to do? He said to sing and to pray. Later on in that chapter, beginning at verse 26, he said, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. And if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him keep, speak to himself and to God. There are a lot of religions today that ignore these rules. Many people will speak in different languages supposedly in the assembly. And often that's not interpreted. That's not what he said to do. If we want to restore New Testament Christianity, we need to go back and follow what the word says. That's what he told him to do at Corinth. He went on to add, let the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. He talked to them about one speaking at a time. And what did he say? God isn't behind all this folly and confusion and disorder in the assembly. He had told them later to conduct them decently and in order. And how's that supposed to be? It's as in all churches of the saints, all assemblies of the church, where the church is gathered for the purpose of edification, are to be conducted in this manner. He's trying to restore proper worship in the church at Corinth, isn't he? He adds also, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they're commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they'll learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church. I know a lot of people don't like this. There's a lot of religions that aren't interested in following what these scriptures say. We all understand that. Well, then go do it differently. Don't have restored New Testament Christianity. But if we're going to restore New Testament Christianity, we've got to set aside human wisdom and go back and follow the instructions in the Word of God. You know what? When that seed is planted in an honest and good heart, that's exactly what will happen. They'll hear the Word and keep it. When somebody hears this Word and doesn't want to keep it, is that good soil? Watch out. You can't judge and neither can I, but God's word can pierce the soul and the spirit and discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word can judge. You sow this word in a heart. You want to know if that heart's a good and honest heart, see whether or not they obey it. That's not hard to figure out. Restoring New Testament Christianity, it can be done. Look at the appeal at Corinth. It was done at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 and 13, what they had received were the things that they spoke. They went back to the original pattern of teaching. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 2, keep the ordinances as I delivered to them. He called their minds back 
to the original word of God. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, I've received to the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I'm going to go back to what was originally taught. 1 Corinthians 15 and 1, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach. What was taught before, I'm going to go back and teach again in order to restore this thing. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 3, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. I'm just telling you what I received. Where did he receive it? We read it earlier tonight from the Holy Spirit. And we have those things written now, the commands of the Lord in the recorded book. And we can go back and deliver that same thing that was originally received by inspiration. He gave us a tall order when he said to be of the same mind and the same judgment. That sounds impossible to do, but we can do that if we'll just set aside what we like and go back to the one standard of God's word. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1, As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. The church at Corinth, those congregations in the region of Galatia, and everywhere else where the gospel was obeyed, they'd all be doing the same thing. They'd be of the same mind and the same judgment because they followed the same standard of the word of God. That's how you restore New Testament Christianity. You restore it by going back to that original rule of faith. You restore it in matters of salvation. You restore it in worship by following what the Word says. That's not hard to do unless we just don't want to do what God wants to do. If you love Him, if you believe Him, you want to do what God wants you to do. I hope that's where you're at spiritually tonight. That's where you're at spiritually tonight. You can be restored. If you're not a Christian, why don't you become a Christian the way the Lord says to? If you're a Christian, you're not faithfully serving the Lord. Why don't you return to him? If we can assist you in becoming a Christian or if as a Christian, you need the church to pray for you to help you. We'd love to help you in either way. If you have any questions about what we've studied, we want to help you with that. Open the Bible and see what the Bible says. If we can assist you now in some way, please come. Have a seat on the front pew while we stand and while we sing.